Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. Genesis 14, 1 to 16. Warfare between nine kings. Warfare between nine kings. Four on one side and five on the other. And then the recovery of what was lost by Abraham, who engages in battle or warfare himself in order to recover what was lost. 14, verse 1. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arya, king of Elasar, and Kedor la Omer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, and Shem Eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedor la Omer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Kedor la Omer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Shaveh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Ain Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kedor la Omer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arya, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Verse 1. In verse 1, we have a mention of these kings, Amraphel, Ariah, Kedar, Laomer, and Tidal, these kings made war with five kings mentioned in verse 2. Four kings against five kings. These five kings lived in the region of Abraham and Lot, in the land of Canaan, in that area. And those five in verse 2 are Bera, uh, Birsha, Shinab, Shem Eber, and the king of Bela, who's unnamed. So the four, four kings are more foreigners, and the five kings are locals, in the region of the land of Canaan around Abraham and Lot's area. There is warfare between these kings. Now what happened? 
In verse 3, all these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is a salt sea. And why did they come? Why did these kings who lived farther away come to this area of the land of Canaan to, to wage war? Uh, firstly, by the way, there is some dis- dispute and, and doubt among commentators as to who these kings were and where they lived, especially the foreign ones. Not the local ones, but the foreign ones, because they say there is no way that there was warfare with distant countries that were hundreds of miles away that they would have uh, an interest in fighting kings who were living there in the land of Canaan or the land of Israel by the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. There's no way, they say, in history that that would have happened. Well, I don't think that that is an impossibility. It is certainly a possibility that they would come from a far distance to make sure that the kings, even though they were smaller kingdoms in the land of Canaan, that they would have an interest there because we know from the subsequent passage that they were paying tribute and they were wanting to get away from having to pay this tribute or this tax to this uh, king or empire or a group of kings and their empire that was far away. Another reason why this is an important territory is it is a thoroughfare. In order to get from Africa or North Africa or from Egypt and, and go by land, you have to go through the land of Canaan or in that area. So if you have control of that, it's going to help your trade route farther east in Mesopotamia. It's going to help it without any doubt. And even if you are shipping things from the Mediterranean Sea, you're coming to the coast, you need to have control of that coastal area in order for the ships and their goods to be able to travel from the coast and go inland to various other parts, whether north into Syria and uh, modern Armenia, Turkey, in those areas, or farther east. You need to have access. And that's why that part of the world, one reason why that part of the world is so much in dispute throughout history, because it is a thoroughfare for land travel and, and sea travel in order to get there. So, I don't have any problems believing that this, these kings, the distant ones, as it says, Shinar. Shinar is southern Mesopotamia around the land of Babylon. Babylon, where the Chaldeans or the Babylonians lived the land of Shinar. And the other one, which is questioned, is Elam. Where was this Elam? Elam is uh, also in, it's even farther east and north of Babylon in modern Iran, in that area. The Persians or the Iranians, they, that's where Elam was. So I don't have any problems believing that. It's quite possible. That's what these words typically mean. Shinar and Elam usually are referring to those places. However, if we take the view that these kings were not coming from such a great distance, but they were closer in the area around the land of Canaan, not the Canaanite kings like these five kings, but closer to the land of Canaan, that's also possible that people from Shinar came and migrated closer to the land of Canaan, and they had their own communities, and they established their own king. The same with the uh, the people of Elam or the Elamites, they might have and could have all migrated for various uh, reasons and lived close to the land of, of Canaan and had their own king as well. That's all very possible. My point is, whether they were distant kings or nearby kings, that is really irrelevant to what's happening in the passage. The reason it's relevant or has become a point of contention 
is that those who don't believe the Bible, they look for ways to undermine the Bible and say, well, this historical fact could not be true at that time, therefore we shouldn't believe that this incident even occurred in the life of Abraham. It's just legendary. It's just something that is uh, a fable or a tale placed here to give us uh, a view of Abraham, a propped up view of Abraham that he really doesn't deserve. No, that's not what's happening. This is the word of God, and it's telling us that this actually happened right. with people and places that actually lived in the time of Abraham. Well, why is it that there's a rebellion? Verse 12, or chapter 14, verse, verses 4 and following explain. Twelve years they had served Kedor la Omer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. They were enslaved to this foreign king for twelve years. They rebel in the thirteenth year. They say, well, no more of this. We're going to shake off your yoke. We're not going to pay you taxes. We're not going to be a part of you anymore. So that's why in the fourteenth year, there's warfare. Fourteenth, Kedor la Omer, presumably since he is mentioned here primarily in this part, he was the main king of the, these four foreign kings. He was the main one, perhaps the most powerful, the most wealthy, and had the most to lose from all this. So he's the one who rallies his own allies, three other kings. They come, verse 5 says, in the 14th year, and it says, they came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzim and Ham and the Amim and Shaveh Kiriathaim. These are all places or regions or valleys in this area of the land of Canaan or in the um, surrounding region. That's what he came and he did and he defeated them. He also defeats in verse 6, it says, the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. This is on the eastern side and the southern side of the land of Canaan, eventually where Esau or the Edomites lived and that became their territory. So, Verses 5 and 6 explain that these four kings were very powerful kings, so powerful that they were able to defeat these kinds of people, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Amim, and even the Horites, who were the long-standing inhabitants of that area in southeastern part of the land of Canaan, who were these Rephaim, Amim, and Zuzim. Let's see Deuteronomy chapter 2. These references are on the board. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, that gives us an example of who they were. Deuteronomy 2, 10 to 12. This is later in the time of Moses, about 500 years later in the time of Moses. Moses explains which territories God has given to certain people who used to live there and who now live there. That's the context of Deuteronomy chapter 2, 2 verse 10. The Amim lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Amim. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. These Amim are and Anakim, they are regarded as Rephaim. Rephaim, what does Rephaim mean? Well, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, it translates this word as giants. 
they were giants. The giants that the spies saw before they uh, invaded the land of Canaan, these giants, they were living there at the time. That's who these people were, showing how powerful these four kings were to destroy these giants. Chapter 3, Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 11. Here's an example. Deuteronomy 3, 11. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Og, king of Bashan, is the only one left of the Rephaim, mentioned in Genesis 14, 5. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. Nine cubits by four cubits. Multiply each one of those by time and a half. So nine cubits would mean about uh, four and a half, so 13 and a half feet long, and four cubits, so say about six feet wide, six or six and a half feet wide. That's how huge he was. That's the kind of bed he slept in, it says. That's how tall and big he was. So that gives us an idea of the giants and who was defeated by Kedor Laomer and his allies. So it wasn't enough for him to kill them or to defeat them. Who else does he defeat? Verse 7, back to Genesis 14, 7. Then they turned back and came to Ain Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. This is describing uh, southern areas of the land of Canaan. He went there and he destroyed them, or they destroyed those people. Then verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim. So these five kings in verse 8 are waging war against the four. The five are the local ones. They see that their territory and they see that their refusal to pay tribute is in jeopardy now. So they want to wage war to defend themselves on that basis. And they came, those five came against the four in verse 9. So it says four kings against five. And verse 10 now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. This valley of Sidim, around the area of the modern Dead Sea, this is the area where Lot went because previous to it being destroyed by God with fire and brimstone, previous to that, it was a very fertile area, very lush area, very good area for raising animals, for raising crops, and for livelihood. That's the way that that area was. It, in chapter 13, it says it was like the Garden of Eden. It was so, so paradisiacal like that, that it was like the Garden of Eden. And so that's where they lived, and it had tar pits. It had these pits where there was tar or asphalt uh, substance, and they they're near the, the bodies of water, they fell into them. Now, it doesn't say, it, it may be unclear whether they fell into them accidentally or intentionally. If they fell in there accidentally, uh, that's kind of uh, 
kind of uh, puerile of them because it's their own land, their own area. They should know better than to fall into them. It, they should rather set it up so that their enemies don't know about that and they fall into them. But if they did it accidentally, they were not very good at battle. But if they fell in there intentionally, intentionally, perhaps because they would be out of the way or not seen, perhaps they did it for that reason, to, to fall into a hole that their enemies don't know. Because they did survive. Some of them did survive. We know that the king of Sodom survived because he meets Abraham later in the chapter. Perhaps he, they, he did it in order to, or they did it to survive. But others who survived, it says in verse 10, they fled to the hill country. They fled to the mountains away from the enemies. Now, with this defeat also comes verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They took all the goods, not only, I believe, of Sodom and Gomorrah, but all of these five cities. All of the five, but Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned, and Sodom is most mentioned, because I think Sodom was the biggest of all five, Gomorrah was the second biggest, so the two are always mentioned in Scripture, almost always side by side, Sodom and Gomorrah, because of that. And they took everything. They didn't destroy the cities, they just took and, and pillaged the cities of the food and the people. Verse 12, the people. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Remember in chapter 13, they departed, and now Lot is there. And it doesn't tell us whether Lot was uh, just a citizen and... And so he was taken as a civilian or whether he was a part of the war and taken as a part of a war as the soldier, he and his family and possessions. Whatever the case is, Lot, Abram's nephew, and all of his possessions were taken. Now, we do know that Lot was a righteous man. We know he was a righteous man because in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, Lot was spared and Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed. So we know he was righteous for that reason. But also in 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, Peter the apostle calls Lot righteous. He calls him righteous six times. I'm sorry, not six times, three times. Three times in verses 6 to 8, he calls him righteous. He was a righteous man. Well, what does this show us? It shows us that the righteous will sometimes undergo affliction even when there's problems going on around or hardships all around or even the punishment of God going on all around. Sometimes the righteous are taken up in the judgment that's going on all around them. We know this to be the case in Genesis 18 and 19 because Lot was supplanted from his home, his livelihood, his possessions when he had to flee Sodom because God was destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. That happened a lot like that. We do know that Noah, Noah, he was living his life and then God announces a flood and then he has to build an ark. He has to be one of only eight people in the whole world to survive He has to live in that ark for over a year. So Noah experienced hardship because of the judgment of God on the rest of the people. 
is Ezekiel chapter 21. Ezekiel chapter 21. When it's time for God to destroy Judah by the Babylonians centuries later, Ezekiel the prophet, around 600 B.C., in Ezekiel 21, this word comes to him. Ezekiel 21, 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, and speak against the sanctuaries, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I shall draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Because I shall cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore my sword shall go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Righteous people were also suffering affliction when God brought punishment upon the wicked. And some of them were even put to death. Some of them were even put to death. The other example we have is of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 43, 5 and 6. In Jeremiah 43, 5 and 6, you may recall that Jeremiah has been preaching to the people to, to give up resistance toward the Babylonians. He's a contemporary of Ezekiel. He's telling the people, give up, don't resist, concede, and God will take care of you under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But if you resist, then I'm going to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar destroys you and exiles you and scatters you to various countries. And, and even if you flee to Egypt, he's going to do that in Egypt. Yep. You think you're going to flee for refuge there, but he's going to chase after you in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar will. Well, guess what? Even though Jeremiah was preaching against doing that, he did it, but he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped by the commander of the forces of Judah, Johanan, in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 43. Johanan pretended to want to know the word of God. He came to Jeremiah and said, tell us the word of God. We're going to do whatever you tell us, pleasant or unpleasant. We'll, we'll do whatever you say. Your God is our God, and we're going to do it. That was in chapter 42. And Jeremiah tells him, don't go to Egypt. You better not go to Egypt. I know what you want to do. You're deceiving yourselves. You, I know what you've planned. You want to go to Egypt. Well, then the next chapter, chapter 43, Johanan says to Jeremiah, no, you're telling a lie. God didn't say that to you. And then what does he do? He takes a bunch of people and he takes Jeremiah also. He kidnaps Jeremiah in verses 5 and 6 and he makes Jeremiah go to Egypt. The very place Jeremiah told everybody not to go, Jeremiah had to go because he's kidnapped. The righteous gets swept away or afflicted when the wicked are punished. That's what happens. That's what I think happened also to Lot here. Then, verses 13 to 16. 13 to 16. It says, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Someone from the battle line, someone who knew about this from that area, he came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time anyone in the Bible is called a Hebrew. In Genesis 14, 13. And... The closest or the best evidence that we have, according to this context, has to do with chapter 10, verses 21 and 25, where one of the descendants of Shem was Eber, or Eber, E-B-E-R. 
And he became an ancestor of Abraham. And then in chapter 11, we see chapter 11, verse 16. Genesis eleven sixteen, describing the descendants of Shem. Eleven sixteen says, And Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg. And he had other sons and daughters. If we keep reading in that genealogy, we come to verse 26. 26, one of the descendants of Eber, who was Terah. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. I believe that in this genealogy of the patriarchs, ancestors of Abraham, that at a point, there was a distinct uh, tribe or clan with a distinct language, and they became known as the Hebrew people because it's based on Eber. And I say that, uh, you might wonder why I say that, because isn't Hebrew and Eber spelled differently? And that's correct. It is spelled differently. That's because in English, we have adopted the transliteration of an H at the beginning of the name. When actually, in the original language, there is no H at the beginning of the name. Through the various languages and transliteration, by the time we come to English, we say Hebrew with an H sound at the beginning when there isn't an H sound. And it would be closer, at least consonantally, with Eber's name, E-B-E-R, where there is no H at the beginning of his name. This is why I think he's called Abram the Hebrew. And even at this point, he begins to be a distinct group within the land of Canaan with so many people in his clan, right? Among his relatives and among his servants and slaves, he's got many people. We'll see an example of that in just a moment. Verse 13. Now, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. These three men who were Amorites were allies of Abraham. We don't know if these allies were also believers or not. They could have been believers, Abraham preaching the gospel to them, or they may not be believers. We don't know. But at the very least, we know they were not, if they were unbelievers, they were not so wicked that Abraham could not seek their help and assistance to go to battle with him. They were not that bad and unreliable that he could not use them and go to battle, even if they were unbelievers. Verse 14, And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. His trained men... What does it mean, trained men? The text doesn't tell us exactly in what way they were trained, but we know from Genesis 18, 19, that Abraham was to teach his household the way of the Lord. Genesis 18, 19. And every true man of God, true prophet of God, is both a, a preacher and a practitioner of the word of God. Right. right? So Abraham would have trained them in that way. But also, I think, if, even if they were unbelievers they would have had such respect for him that they would have done whatever he desired for them to do. And 
Thirdly, it says in 14, they were trained men born in his house, which means they were home-born slaves. Right. Home-born slaves. They did, did have an interest in following what Abraham told them to do because they were slaves. They didn't rebel. They could have rebelled as slaves, but they didn't. They, they submitted to the will of Abraham to engage in warfare here. 318 of them, which gives us an example uh, of how many people he had in his, in his right. household and in, in all those he had as, as pastors or shepherds to take care of all the flocks. That, that's how, how many people he had, not including the women and children. Right. And these are 318 trained men, trained up over time to go to war also, because that's what he's training them to do also. Not only spiritual warfare, but physical warfare, to actually be trained and ready to do so. This number of 318, we should not think that this was the uh, that there were 318, there was Abraham, and then Abraham's three friends, his three allies. We, we should not think it was just that number of that many men who went. There was likely more that Abraham also brought, more that um, his three friends, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, they all brought because they would have had their own people, their own men, trained to go out and do so. We don't know the exact number. My point in saying this is, this wasn't a, a petty war or a petty battle. It was more significant than meets the eye if we're, if we're reading the text too fast. It was a bigger deal than it seems uh, at a superficial reading. So, verse 14, And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Here's another point if you read commentators. Where, and there's a few names and places like this in this chapter. But chapter 14, verse 14 is another place. They went as far as Dan. Dan was in the northern part of the land of Israel. This city where the tribe of Dan settled, this place was in the northern part of the land of Israel. The commentators say that there is no way that this place could have been called Dan before the tribe of Dan settled there. Absolutely no way. Well... My argument to that is, one, the word Dan is not unique to the Hebrew language. There are cognates of this word Dan in Ugaritic and in Aramaic. There are cognates in other Semitic languages in Akkadian, in the different branches of Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian. There are cognates of this word Dan in these various Semitic languages. So when he says it's called, they went as far as Dan in that northern part, hundreds of years before the tribe of Dan even conquered that area, it may be that he's taking a local name of that place already. He could be using that. And we do know that this place was also known as Laish. That's another name for this town. So... It may have had one town uh, name, or may, may have had two. It may have alternated between one to another over different periods of time. For example, um, in the area, uh, in various areas of the world, even in our modern era, the names of cities change because of who's in power at the time. <coughs> that happens throughout history. 
And that may have happened at this point. Well, if the first argument I used, that it's a Semitic word and so therefore different languages could use it even before the Hebrew people owned it, another argument is sometimes when we're speaking of history, like Moses writing 500 years after this incident, right. he could use a current name for the place that was not the name at the time. For example, if we were to, I don't know the exact dates, but let's just say it's somewhere I know in the 1500s to 1600s. What was the name of New York City at that time? Anybody know? It was called New Amsterdam. It was called New Amsterdam. But whenever we refer to the history of New York City, even going that far back, we don't always clarify and say, well, New Amsterdam, currently known as New York City, uh, we don't always do that. We just say New York City in, in, uh, in the 1500s, this is the way life was in New York City. Even though it wasn't called New York City at the time, it was called New Amsterdam. So that, that's when the Dutch owned it and then the British conquered the Dutch and then renamed it. <laughs> um, accordingly. To, accordingly. So th that's an example in, in U.S. history where names change, but we don't accuse a modern historian or a modern reporter of being uh, anachronistic or wrong or inaccurate about the past. We, he's just using a convention. Yeah. That's what Moses is doing so that people know what, what place we're talking about. So they go as far as Dan. Then verse 15, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Now, going outside of Israel or Canaan, farther north to a place called Hobah, which is farther beyond Damascus. And they give us this place, Damascus, because that Damascus is a more well-known name than Hobah. He divides and he conquers them. It says in verse 15, he divides, he goes by night, and he defeats them and conquers them and makes them get out of his territory, get out of the land of Canaan and go beyond Canaan and even beyond Damascus. Verse 16, and he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. God miraculously allowed this to happen. That is, they took everything from warfare in Canaan. Then when he, Abraham went and defeated them, he was able to bring back everything without loss of life, without loss of civilian life. It doesn't say if the soldiers lost life and what happened to the foreign enemies and stuff like that. It doesn't tell us all that, but it at least tells us that what Abraham lost, he was able to recover in full. Another example of this in the Bible is 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30 with David. It happened in the case of David as well. He lost everything and then he recovered everything and even all the people he recovered. One more point before we leave this part of the chapter. What does God think of warfare or, and self-defense? We could say self-defense in terms of personal self-defense, and then national self-defense is warfare. What does God think of it? There are people uh, within Christianity who have said that warfare has absolutely no place 
And even, they will say, self-defense, personal self-defense, has absolutely no place. More often, they will attack national self-defense, attack warfare, and say that that has no place for any nation. And some of these Christian groups will prohibit their people from joining the military, participating in government, and so forth. They prohibit that, and they say it's against Christian belief. It's against New Testament belief. But let me address that briefly and say why it is not against Christian belief, biblical belief, an accurate biblical belief. For one, it's not restricted to the time of the law of Moses. Warfare certainly occurred under Moses and under Joshua. It's not restricted to that. It's not, because now we have it right here in the time of Abraham. Abraham did not do it in disobedience. God favored him. God helped him to recover everything. And it says in verse 20, Melchizedek acknowledges, he says, Blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek, the man of God, tells Abraham he knows that it was God who helped him with this victory. So God endorsed what Abraham did to recover this is before the law of Moses. God helped Abraham during this time. Now, after the law of Moses, what do we have? We have several examples after the law. An example is in Proverbs, book of Proverbs. And as we're finding this, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 18. What is the book of Proverbs but perennial truth, perennial wisdom? The book of Proverbs, even among people who publish the Bible, they'll publish the New Testament, and they'll publish the Psalms and the book of Proverbs together to hand out to people evangelistically. That's what they do, right? Even they understand that the book of Proverbs and the Psalms has truth that is meant for every generation. And if that's the case, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 18. Proverbs 20, 18 says, Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. This will remind us of that parable that Jesus announced in Luke 14, 25 to 35 when he compares one nation's king to another nation's king and says, he better consult whether he's going to be able to defeat this other one, right? He better make sure he knows what he's doing, otherwise they're going to consider him a fool. He doesn't know what he's doing. That's what Solomon is telling us here. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Further, speaking of the New Testament and how it is applicable there. Our first example is Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, 17. I'm sorry, 3.14. Luke 3.14. Remember, John the Baptist is preaching. People are coming for baptism. They ask him, what, what do you mean, John, when you say, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance? What should we do to show forth our repentance? And one group is told to sell their, or, or to give away their food and clothing to those who don't have. The second group is told, the tax collectors, they're, they're told, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So don't be a cheat. 
when you are collecting taxes from the people. And then in 14, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. John the Baptist tells these soldiers not to use their force, don't accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Well, how are soldiers paid? They are paid by the revenue of the government, the state, right? They're paid by that, and that comes from the taxes of the citizens. They're also paid when they conquer their enemies, and they can enjoy what they are able to pillage from their enemies. That's what the way it should be in warfare. Soldiers get compensation that way. But they're not supposed to do anything unjustly, taking it by force, accusing people falsely, and then obtaining the wealth of other people that way. They're not supposed to do that. What did John the Baptist not tell the tax collectors and soldiers to do? He didn't tell the tax collectors, you have no place in society. You, you believing tax collectors, now you have to quit collecting taxes for the government because it's a sin to work for the government. He didn't say that. And in 14, he did not say to the soldiers, you need to quit the military because it's a sin to be a soldier. You cannot be a believing soldier. He didn't say that. He said, be content, which assumes that they're going to stay there and continue doing the work of a soldier, which is to defend one's own country. That's the purpose of a soldier. Romans 13. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for a fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It's clear that the government, and in this case, the Roman Christians are under a pagan, unbelieving government. Even the pagan, unbelieving government has duties towards their citizens. Duties not to exploit them, but to carry out justice, to punish evildoers, and to support and praise those who do good. And when they do evil, they have a sword. So when evildoers are in existence within the country, so criminals within the country or enemies outside the country, they have a sword to make sure that their own people are protected. That's what the government does. It's supposed to do. And further examples are in Matthew 8, Centurion, and even a Centurion in Acts chapter 11, 
Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11, that they came to faith in Christ, but they were never told to give up their profession. Never told to give up their profession as an evidence of repentance. Now, someone may say, well, those are arguments from silence. Those are arguments from silence. No, they're not arguments from silence because whenever people convert, their, their sins are on the surface, right? Whenever they convert, their sins come to the surface, especially their, their major sins, the major one, two, three, or four sins. They're on the surface because that's what's bothering their consciences, and that's what they address with the preacher of the gospel. They say, you mean it's a sin to fornicate? You mean it's a sin to view pornography? You mean it's a sin to get drunk? I, I, you made me feel guilty in that message. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes, I'm saying that. Yes, those are sins. You must repent of them. That's what the rich did. That's what the tax collectors did. That's what the soldiers did. They went to John the Baptist because they felt guilty. And they said, well, what, what are we supposed to do? What does repentance look like? And then he told them. But he did not tell them to get out of the government or to get out of the military. He did not tell them to do that, which means that there is a place to defend ourselves personally, individually, self-defense, and national self-defense by means of a military. Amen. Now, we're not talking about using the military as an aggressive force to conquer the world. That's not the context. The context is self-defense. When there are genuine threats from foreigners and criminals, that's when the government should do their duty and protect their citizens. I think that's what Abraham did. By the way, um, in Romans 13, it also mentioned taxes, taxes that we ought to give to the government. It doesn't tell us the amount of taxes. It doesn't tell us the amount of taxes, but I believe that we do have evidence that it should not be onerous. It should not be so much in taxes that the government expects of their people that it brings them down, it enslaves them. It should not be like that. Not at all. One example of that is in Nehemiah chapter 5, where Nehemiah, the governor, realizes that's what's been going on, and he rebukes the people and the governors for doing that, for making them so impoverished that they had to mortgage their fields, they had to give up their possessions and become slaves. He said, no, it shouldn't be to that extent. And also, Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, The wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. I'll let you interpret that. <laughs> All right, well, let's now take a break.